Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. The feminist movement has led to groundbreaking legislation in the U.S., things like the 19th Amendment that allowed some women to vote, Title IX that encourages gender equity in education, and the Violence Against Women Act. But when did the movement actually start, and whose voices are still missing from the conversation? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we dive into the history of feminism, and we hear from an activist who's creating public art to spread information and awareness. But first, a look at the modern feminist movement and what that means. Dr. Brittany Cooper is Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University. She's co-founder of the Crunk Feminist Collective and co-author of a new book called Feminist AF, A Guide to Crushing Girlhood. Dr. Cooper, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. There's so much of the work that you do as a scholar, but also as a public scholar, I think that is important, is really challenging the the role of feminism in our lives, but also the invisibility often, the forced invisibility of the experiences of Black women and girls, so that Black women and girls can speak in their own voices and not have to fit into this mold. For those in our audience who may not be familiar with this term, talk to us about what Black feminism is and what it does. Oh, yes. So Black feminism is my uh, life's work and passion, uh, and I get to be part of a a long-standing tradition, a more than centuries-long tradition of Black women who said very simply that freedom matters and that gender matters for Black women's lives as much as dealing with the issue of racial identity uh, and the problem of white supremacy. Uh, And so we are absolutely folks who are trying to smash the patriarchy like people tend to think of traditional feminists. We think a lot about what the social structures that we face mean for women's lives, for how we mother, for how we work, uh, for how we build relationships and families, um, for how we earn money. But we also ask and demand that we think with a racial lens. And so essentially we say, look, uh, everybody's womanhood is not the same. If you are a Black woman, if you are a Latinx woman, if you are Afro-Latinx, if you are an Asian woman, your racial or ethnic or national identity shapes how you experience womanhood. Uh, And so I work in the tradition of Black women who have committed their lives to making the world better for Black women and girls. One of the things that I really appreciate about your work and the way that you center your work is that you put it within this broader context and legacy of Black women demanding that sense of representation and understanding that connection to the history also shapes how we think of it today. How did you come to see yourself or name yourself as a Black feminist? 
You know, it was an interesting journey. Uh, so I went to Howard in the late 90s and early 2000s, and it was a wonderful time and a great education. Uh, at the time that I was at Howard, um, I took lots of courses where Black history and Black life was centered, but I didn't learn a lot about Black women freedom fighters. And so I found myself in a PhD program a few years later, and all of a sudden I was learning the names of women like Mariah Stewart uh, from Boston in the 1830s and Anna Julia Cooper, who was a mainstay of Washington DC politics in the uh, 1890s. Uh, and I had never heard of these women or their contributions. And so I realized that there was a critical lacuna, a gap in my own understanding of Black freedom traditions and of Black intellectual work. Uh, and, I, and I was raised in a family of women who ran everything, my grandmother, my mother, and my aunts. And so all of a sudden I thought, right, why didn't I learn about Black women who helped to make these things happen? And so I had these fierce Black feminist professors who modeled for me that black women's lives mattered that that our that patriarchy and sexism was an additional system that we had to struggle against uh, and that we needed a language for that but that there were black women who had been writing and marching and organizing their communities for centuries at that point who had given us a language and a framework to think about it and so i was very happy at that point to call myself a feminist um, and to disabuse myself of the notion that i had had at howard that feminism was a white woman's thing. That's what I thought when I was at Howard, that feminism was something that white girls did. And, you know, and I just learned that I was wrong and that I hadn't read enough. Uh, and once I read more, um, I realized that I was leaving lots of really important folks on the table by not claiming a feminist legacy. One of the other challenges there when we think about the layers of identity and the layers of feminism is really the role of black trans women. What role should Black trans women play in this activism or awareness surrounding Black feminism? Basically, we couldn't have the freedom fights that we have without Black trans women, without Black trans people. Um, and so I didn't grow up knowing trans folks or knowing that they were trans. It was a, a an understanding and an experience I came to much later on my feminist journey, but it is essentially a feminist idea, right? That genitalia, that the, that the genders that we are assigned in the delivery room should not determine our destiny. And one of the things I love about this new movement for racial justice is that it has been really clear that black trans lives matter, but we're not just gonna talk about black trans people in terms of like, oh, they're dead and dying and struggling, but rather they are leaders, they have a freedom vision, and that vision is an expansive vision that includes us all. Brittany, one of the challenges that we see is that other women, particularly women of color, you know, Latinx women, Asian American women who say, wait a minute, what about us? We are also suffering under these systems, these interlocking systems. We are also seeing these differential outcomes. What do you say to people who say, listen, just focusing on black feminism overlooks the sort of universal, not universal, but the wider impact of patriarchy and these multiple systems of discrimination? 
Yeah. What I say is that, you know, that's the baggage of white feminism. Black women have always invited everyone to the table, right? So it's a black woman, right? Um, Loretta Ross, who in the 1970s, together with other women of color, created the women of color organizing framework because she said there was a conference in Houston in the 1970s uh, where, you know, black women were in rooms organizing and all of these women of color showed up, Asian women, Latinx women, and they said, look, we don't want to be with these white girls. We want to be with y'all. And so they came together in a mode of solidarity and said, "What? how can we invent a framework that includes all of our experiences? Um, and so they started to think about women of color feminism as a category. It is a field of study. We teach it. Um, and if you look at these early foundational texts in feminist thought, like this bridge called our back, um, uh, making face, making soul, those are compendiums of women of color writing together in the early 1980s saying, we understand that our struggles are linked, right? And so I think of my own feminist understanding, it is unapologetically Black, but it is also unapologetically in solidarity um, with women of color, both in the United States and around the world. Um, so there is no schism for me, right? We can all rock together. And look, we all have to do our work around rocking together. And so people got to critique their anti-Blackness. Black folks got to critique their kind of US-centric nativism sometimes and anti-immigrant sentiment uh, towards other folk of color who are not Black immigrants, right? So we all have some work to do around making solidarity work. And the reason that we got to do that work is because white supremacy is our enduring problem uh, when it comes to solidarities among people of color. And I'm never here for these battles between people of color because I'm like, well, this is how white supremacy works, right? You know, white folks, you know, helped along by white supremacy get to run off with the whole pie and they give us a slice and then we sit over here sort of battling about how to divide it up. That both and approach is so much stronger and powerful as a force to bring people together against common challenges. Talk to us about hip hop feminism, because that is often present in your work. And I may have listeners who say, well, well, what is that? And why is it different from black feminism or any other dimension? What's hip hop feminism? Yeah, so, you know, I'm part of the hip hop generation. Of, at this point, there are multiple generations of hip hop fans and folks who have come up on the music. And so when we when my friends and I were coming through grad school in the 19, uh, I mean, in the early 2000s, you know, we were part of this group of folks who said, look, we don't want to leave our generational music on the table, problematic as it is. And hip hop, you know, can be terrible. It's deeply misogynist. It has, you know, it has been stridently homophobic. And so folks are like, well, how can you be a feminist uh, and also rock to hip hop? And it's like, well, because after we fight the patriarchy and white supremacy in the classroom, we're where do you go to work out all that energy? My generation of folks, we went to the club, you know, we shook our booties. That's what we did. And we did it to a really dope beat. Um, and so we didn't believe this sort of narrative that we had to leave our cultural legacy on the table. We said we can challenge patriarchy and hip hop. And here is the the, the moment of triumph that I think we're having right now, when we started out calling ourselves hip hop feminists after Joan Morgan did so in her book, When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost in 1999, and then all of us who read that book and came along behind her, we were still trying to sort of you know, make arguments about the need to have more women on the mic. We were making arguments about the need to have queer representation in hip hop. Now you look up and you got Lil Nas X, you got Young M.A., you got Sheikah, you have queer rappers, Hip hop feminists also sort of kept, you know, 
banging the drum when in the early 2000s you saw female MCs sort of leaving the the sphere of rap so like i came up as a teen in the 90s and we had amazing female MCs, queen latifah and mc light and you know lauren hill all of these folks and then there was like a dearth for a bit now women are taking over so you got megan the stallion right you've got um Tierra Whack, uh, you you know, you've got Sweetie, right? You've got Doja Cat. So young folks are able to bump to women who got bars, who have real talent. Um, and, and the last thing that I'll say about this too is part of the reason you need a hip hop feminist analysis is because what how do folks think that Meg the Stallion knew how to respond in the moment when her ex-boyfriend shoots her in a car, right? Um, and she then gets dragged on all sides dragged because at first she doesn't out him then she finally tells law enforcement what he did and people call her a snitch and so she writes this sort of op-ed in the new york times about how she wants to make space for women and how she wants to deal with the problem of violence and how she's not interested in sort of having internecine battles between other women and hip-hop that's a hip-hop feminist framework come to life and that's us saying that feminism can make any place that it exists better and more inclusive for everybody. There's also an accessibility for hip hop feminism that you don't have to be a well-credentialed professor to be able to articulate what this means to stand up in your fullness, say domestic violence is wrong, violence is wrong, and you don't get to judge me based on whether you like how I appear and present. And that to me is the very essence of feminism and to then put it in a hip hop space, I think pushes all of us. You mentioned coming of age in this space where hip hop was so prominent in your generation is sort of this binding moment. But you have also come into your intellectual space at a time where people have opportunities to connect in very different ways. And one of the connections that you've created for all of us to be able to have these spaces of conversation is the Crunk Feminist Collective. What is the collective and what is it that you want to do with that space? Yeah, so the Crunk Feminist Collective is my crew of homegirls. We're a multiracial women of color collective. We have Black, Latinx, and South Asian members. Uh, We've been writing together and organizing together since 2010. Um, And we're trying to do exactly what you said. So look, most of the members of the collective, including me and my co-founder, Dr. Susanna Morris, we're working class girls. We're first generation college grads. And so we didn't come from families where people were super educated. And then we showed up with like PhDs and, you know, but also felt like real regular. And we're trying to think about how do you bring your whole self to this, to this very elite kind of space. Uh, And so we found, you know, black women and women of color that we liked who were doing really important work in the world around reproductive justice, community organizing, other professors. And we said, we want to start a blog um, where we can have uh, conversations about feminism that would be like, if you came over to my house and sat on the sofa and we were drinking a glass of wine, how will we be talking about the patriarchy then? Because we don't have to, we can, we, because people are sophisticated, they want sophisticated conversation, and we don't have to sort of perform this academic, like esoterica, right? Where no one knows what you're talking about, or why did you say it with that word when you could have said it with this word? Um, and also, we weren't trying to perform that because we still talked about it in really regular context. And so that was the core kind of idea of the CFC. Um, And so now 
we've been doing it for 11 years. We've had, you know, children, we've changed jobs. Uh, we're at different places in our careers. And so we don't blog as much, but what we are doing in this moment is uh, we have this dope little weekly newsletter called the remix on the Substack platform. Uh, and so we write uh, sh some shorter and longer essays there. We host some events. We have a kind of fun book club um, and we're trying to kind of just be in community with people who want to talk about all of the madness of the world um, and want to have frameworks to do that, but want to feel like the space is big and inviting uh, and not super judgmental. Um, and we're also trying to, to do that as academics in many cases um, in ways that feel sustainable because the academy can be a real hard space if you're a Black woman or a woman of color. Um, and we came through at a time when our mentors were saying, this space has killed so many Black women far too early. Uh, and so in our generation, one of the things we have hoped for is that we learn to do it differently and in community rather than competition um, and uh, with solidarity and people who have our back so that maybe, you know, we can maybe we can live to tell the tale. So let's talk about this encounter that we're having right now, this conversation. And there will be many people who will listen to our conversation and say, what can we do, right? Pointing out all of the problems, the challenges, being able to recognize the need to center these voices and these experiences, some of our listeners will say, what's the next step? What would you say, one or two things that you would say to listeners, now that you have this awareness or affirmation, this is what we can do to really move communities forward toward the sort of freedom and liberation that your work centers. Yeah, you know, I, I think that sometimes people get so intimidated because they're like, there's so the problems are so big, where do I begin? But I literally, before our interview, was reading this great piece about how, um, from um, Nadia Boltz Weber, about how we're all so overwhelmed um, with our work and with the concerns of the world. And so we don't know, you know, so we, so it, it you know, not to be ableist, but it, it feels like a kind of paralysis. So what I would say is remember that the little things you do, all, it all counts. Or as I've been saying to my mother throughout the pandemic, we take all wins. You got up out of bed, you got a shower, we take all wins, right? Um, but also, you know, because I grew up, um, you know, you know, I just tell people the most revolutionary thing my mama did to set me on this path when she was a single mom um, and we lived in public housing, she got me a library card and she read me a bedtime story every night. And that was the thing that introduced me to a love of reading. It was a thing that showed me that there was a world bigger than the world that I lived in. And so if you are like, I don't have that many resources, I care, but I don't know where to begin. Sometimes it's literally having story time with your kid, right? Uh, it is, it is being a good, you know, being a good ally at the PTA meeting, right? Um, it is, you know, when you see a neighbor dealing with a microaggression in the supermarket, you don't stay silent. You you say something, you back up the person who's dealing with, with the imposition on their time or their day. Those are ways to be political in everyday relational spaces that are not about these huge issues, that are not about you having to spend a lot of money, but that are about you being tuned in just to the community around you and how you can take care of the people that you encounter in your day-to-day -day life. Um, and I do think um, 
that it all counts. I don't think, I think that that is a community-based approach to changing the world. And in the end, we're gonna change it community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood. Um, because even when we're all talking about big structural change, you know, the, the big structural change happens with people. People have to change, attitudes have to change. Um, and, and when we all think about the moments in our lives where we came to think radically differently about something, very rarely was it because of an article we read and very often it was because of a person that we met or we knew or an experience that we encountered. Well, one opportunity for change is your upcoming book, Feminist AF, A Guide to Crushing Girlhood. Yeah. And it's really targeted toward a younger generation of feminists and the yeah. ability for people to have a conversation, to encounter that, but to really be seen and know that it is okay to stand in that identity. Why do you think it's important to introduce young people? And I'm intentional here about saying young people, not just young girls. Why is it important to introduce young people to this concept of feminism? Look, first of all, I think young people are actually ahead of us. And so they're <laughs> they're pushing all of us to get better. They're pushing all of us to be better about, you know, how we use pronouns, how we think about gender roles, um, how we think about relationship building, all of that. Um, and so this is a book that I wrote with two other members of the Crunk Feminist Collective, Dr. Susanna Morris and Dr. Chanel Craft Tanner, because again, I'm always doing stuff with my girls. And we thought, look, we're your dope aunties who want to have the real, real conversations about white supremacy and patriarchy, capitalism, sex, relationships, the stuff that hopefully you can talk to your parents about, but whether you can or you can't, here is a resource that you can go to to say, man, I was feeling like that. I don't know how to navigate this friendship. I don't know how to navigate, um, you know, dating, right? And dating whoever I want to date. I'm, you know, I'm really trying to think about my position in the world and my politics. And so we have young people who are engaged. If we think about the young people growing up today, they have grown up in an era of war and protest right that is what they see you know and and pandemic now they are fully engaged uh and they're facing down the barrel of climate change and they want to know what can they do and who do they need to be um and so this is a book just that allows us to be in conversation with young people um sharing some of the things that we've learned in our journey as feminists that we think would be useful um, and inviting young people to then build a feminism for themselves just as every generation needs to do and so i hope that everyone will pick it up for the young people in their lives and use it as a conversation starter and i think dope aunties needs to be your next podcast or project just you know let me know when that's ready dr Brittany cooper is associate professor of women's and gender studies and africana studies at rutgers university she's co-founder of the crunk feminist collective dr cooper thank you so much thank you so much after the break, a feminist scholar talks through the various waves of feminism and how some women's voices have been left out of the movement. And later, an activist using collages to spread a feminist message and raise awareness in the streets of New York City. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. It's been 100 years since the passage of the 19th Amendment. It was intended to give women the ability to vote, but in practice, it only enfranchised some women. Today, we're talking about the feminist movement, 
But what it means to be a feminist hasn't always been clear. According to a 2020 study from the Pew Research Center, 61% of women say they would call themselves feminists. But many American women say feminism is empowering, while others see it as polarizing and even outdated. Later in the show, an artist and activist on how pasting slogans around a city became part of a global feminist movement. But now, some history and context of the movement with Dr. Karen Bonavista Hanna. She's Assistant Professor of Gender, Sexuality, and Intersectionality Studies at Connecticut College. Dr. Hanna, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. You know, when we think about feminism in, in all of its manifestations, it's often thought to be one of the oldest movements in history, in world history. But that can also lead to some controversy about when it started and by whom. Talk to our listeners about when this movement for feminism actually starts, but also how you define feminism. Sure. So what I always uh, teach my students about feminism is that it is especially important, if not more important, to look for whose voices are missing from narratives, as well as looking for whose voices are present. If you ask me to name when the feminist movement, which I would define for myself as uh, resistance against all forms of oppression, it is impossible to define that. We know that, for instance, trans people whose voices have been historically missing from mainstream narratives of feminism have always been um, actively uh, fighting for their own um, senses of livelihood, for them to, to be able to live full lives in society. You know, when I was taking classes in high school and in college talking about feminism and talking about some of these movements, we always learned about the Seneca Falls Convention. And many people thought that that gathering was the start of feminism. But what I'm hearing from you is that by placing that as the start, it overlooks the really centuries of resistance toward oppression that was led by those committed to the voices of women. Why do you think it's so important to broaden our understanding and not, as you say, center these voices of more affluent white women within those movements? I mean, when we, we think about oppression, right, we know that in the words of Patricia Hill Collins, oppression is interlocking. So as trans activists, as non-binary people have shown us along the way is that women, and I'm talking about cis women, can be oppressors too. So elite women, um, cis women, women with privilege, they they can be oppressors. And in the cases of Seneca Falls and the suffrage movement, this was a time in which um, many leaders of the suffrage movement were actually trying to undermine the rights of black men who gained the right to vote um, when the 15th Amendment was passed. Uh, and so when we reimagine uh, what feminist uh, resistance looks like, we, we know that sometimes the main players in feminist history are, are not always uh, the people that you know, we, we want to celebrate. We, we know that their achievements are, are sometimes you know, um, undermining the rights of others. 
And one of the things that I think is important there is is also the discussion and debate about what rights should be pursued first. And that was a key debate within feminist movements, and it continues until this day. But that legacy and that connection between what the feminist movement and feminist activism looked like in, in decades past shapes where we are today. Share with our listeners those traditional waves or or the ways that we think about the traditional waves of feminism and how it has led to what we are seeing today. Scholars have already uh, have criticized the waves. Um, We know its limitations, but we also know its, its strengths because it is a mainstream paradigm that helps us to kind of sink in our, our, our fingers into um, at least some um, some history. Typically, we hear the first wave being um, something that started from the early or the mid 19th century and continuing into the early early 20th century. So, um, 1848 Seneca Falls, the first women's rights convention, is typically named as the beginning of the feminist movement. Um, And that continued up until uh, 1920, when the 19th Amendment or the women's right to vote or really the white women's right to vote was was uh, passed. The second wave is defined as the 1950s to the 1980s. So we have the rise of uh, what's come to be known as the unhappy housewife. This is the middle class, um, upper class woman who really is is bored um, and frustrated with the limited Uh, role that she has in the home and wants to expand that. Um, We have um, fights for reproductive rights of women and we have um, occupational segregation in employment as another objective of that uh, that wave. Um, Then we have the third movement which uh, is often defined as around you know the late 1980s the 1990s some people say that it's continuing to now some people say that it ended and then fourth wave has emerged typically the third wave is known as sort of the the people who have been missing from the narrative the people who were present uh, during the second wave uh, but had been erased from historical documentation and these people are developing now their own sorts of feminism, right? Queer people, trans people, people who are making coalitional inroads and, and creating their own forms of, of, of what they see as empowerment. So Dr. Hannah, one of the things that I think is important for our listeners to really grasp on to what you've just said about why the the idea of waves of feminism is problematic, but also how it helps us wrap our head around all that's happened, is that that work is really about deconstructing this monolithic view of organizing, of the experiences of women. And so that while some feminists said, we want to fight for the ability of, of women to work outside of the home, you had women of color who said, wait, we didn't have a choice, we've been there, those issue priorities are different. What do you think we need to address when we think about the, the fullness of the movement for feminism so that we are actually capturing that diversity that you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it's really building on the the work of feminists of color, uh, black feminists in the 80s who were like, I'm, I'm thinking of Bell Hooks in particular, because she writes a lot about coalitional politics and solidarity um, among women, how diversity um, doesn't undermine unity. So, you know, this, this is work that has, has been done, 
And I think coalitional work uh, is becoming more uh, of something that activists uh, are, are thinking about. I think, you know, it's important when we think about feminism, we think about it as not just activist work, but also theoretical work, right? It's a paradigm, it's a way of thinking, as well as, as action. And so I think there's many ways for us to be able to broaden our conceptualization of what feminism can look like in this broadened way that's not binary, that's not exclusive to um, to white supremacy or furthering white supremacy. Um, so I think that we need to start with a really firm grasp of a definition of feminism and come to that definition because there's so many forms of feminism, definitions of feminism that exist. You talk to one person, you talk to another person. They, they will probably have a different idea of what feminism is. And I think it's a similar thing when we talk about racism and we don't have a clear definition of what racism is. Racism is often you know, thought of as just one race over another, but it's not. Historically, racism is the structural and individual acts of oppression that are steep, steeped in white supremacy, right? But if we if we erase white supremacy from the definition, you know, it's it's no holds bars. You can talk about you know reverse racism and it all blows up. We need to have a very firm definition of feminism in the same way. Adding on to what I said earlier about resistance against all forms of oppression, it's not kind of like an all lives matter sort of thing, right? It's it's thinking about oppression in it's very interlocking ways and with a goal of dismantling systemic structures. Um, and it's very important, I'm glad you were asking this, to be very clear that these, what is the structure? Heteropatriarchal, settler colonialist, racial capitalism. And it's a long word, a group of words, um, but it's really is, if you have that as like all those words and all those ideas, um, in your mind, in terms of what you're trying to fight, um, then I think we'll be on on the same the same page, right? And we will make sure that one group, in their empowerment or in their um, you know achievement, is not undermining another group at that at at their expense. Listening to you talk about the dynamic interlocking nature of all of this. I was reminded of all of the tension and controversy surrounding the Women's March or Women's Marches starting in 2017, where people said, listen, I want to do something. I'm concerned about what this election or set of elections will mean. And why would you say that I'm doing anything wrong because I'm the person or groups of people who are doing this? Why am I being targeted? And what I hear in your comments is that it's not just about individual acts. It's about how that all comes together to be able to interrogate and then dismantle these systemic and sort of institutional challenges that exist. When we think about that, of people who may be well-meaning, who may think that they are getting it right, but don't consider these dimensions that you mentioned, what do you say to those people? who say, listen, what else do you expect me to do? What can we actually do to move things forward here? So this is so hard, right? I think it requires a lot of um, a lot of personal relationship work. Um, I, I would love to be able to, 
you know, change people's minds just with my voice. But I think a lot of uh, the inner work that needs to be done um, in order to reckon with one's own complicity in um, these systems of power, um, it's sensitive. And it requires sort of ongoing work that uh, that is done in relationship. You know, I, I would encourage folks who, you know, I would who, who maybe consider themselves to be allies, um, consider themselves feminists, people who are who are dedicated toward systemic social change, um, that they have the patience. And I am, as I'm saying this, I'm saying, okay, I, I need to practice it as well, because it is hard to, um, to be patient and, and to have conversations and do the education work with people in our families, people who care about us, right? We're so often just kind of cutting off those conversations in order to maintain our relationships. But um, social change work is relational. It's not going to work if we don't do the the inner transformative work as well. Um, and I and I love the work. You know, if anybody's looking for um, for reading, um, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown's book Emergent Strategy is one uh, book that I love, and I think it's a it's a really accessible read that my students have enjoyed too. She says, "Transform yourself to transform the world," and I think doing that um, also means transform transforming your own communities and starting from the ground up transform yourself to transform the world. Dr. Karen Bonavista Hanna is Assistant Professor of Gender, Sexuality, and Intersectionality Studies at Connecticut College. Dr. Hanna, thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. When we return, a New York-based activist shares what inspired her to start a feminist collective just three months ago. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Over the years, feminists have used different forms of activism, things like protests and consciousness-raising demonstrations to push back against oppressive systems. Our next guest takes a different approach. She's using art and large-scale street collages to spread her message. Those messages focus on things like domestic violence, trans rights, and femicide, among other political issues. The work consists largely of black and white block prints that are pasted on the sides of buildings. They include statements like 93% of female murder victims are killed by a man they know. And also, I am not your property. Camille started the New York-based intersectional feminist collective, Feminist Collages NYC. We've agreed not to use her last name because she's concerned that her involvement in this activism may impact her application for U.S. citizenship. I first asked Camille to share a bit about how her group operates. We are a grassroots movement, and uh, we describe ourselves as an intersectional feminist collective. Um, We use wild posting to denounce domestic abuse, sexual violence, sexism, racism, and any form of oppression affecting women and gender minorities every day. So let's talk a little bit about the collective in terms of how it came to be and then the very important work that you're doing to get this message out in a way that challenges people but also inspires them. 
you said that you glue these slogans and these postings around the city to bring awareness to oppression against women and girls. Talk to us about how the collective started and then how it started in New York City. Of course, yes. So um, initially, the movement was called Femicide Collages because we exclusively focused on murders of women. Uh, but since it was since then, it was renamed Feminist Collages because members naturally started discussing their own experiences and broadened the issues they wanted to raise. Uh, but the movement started with one woman in 2019 in France, and she would go out and paste slogans in the public space, um, memorializing uh, victims of femicide. And it was a way for her to spread awareness and get people to realize that it was a really big societal issue and not just, you know, isolated incidents, because it's always how it's presented to us. So um, this woman really decided to take matters into her own hands literally and create political awareness through the means that were available to her and that was paper paint and glue which was great because it was low cost and really high visibility and um, soon she had many other people join uh, and post these messages in public spaces with her and today the Paris group has 3,000 members um, there are collages groups in other 200 city, cities and villages in France. And now it's also in 12 other countries, including um, Spain, Germany, Italy, Mexico, Canada, and now the US. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I think is so encouraging about the work that you and others are doing is that it is really addressing this global need to address the rights and respect the humanity of women and girls so that it doesn't get isolated as being just a challenge for one country or one society or even one village, but thinking globally about this need. What is it that you want Feminist Collages NYC to achieve within that broader scope? So one thing that I realized, uh, you know, through the, the collages, because they really were bringing this issue to to the forefront of like the media and 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 also the 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 general knowledge of the public um in other countries but in the u.s um i don't know if people know that but um the u.s is among the top 10 countries in the world with the most femicides per capita around 2,000 women or girls are murdered every year because of their gender so that's one every five hour and yet the U.S. is one of the rare countries that doesn't have an official definition for the word femicide. Um, there are no marches or protests against femicide like in all of the other countries at the moment, you know. And the issue isn't making headlines. There isn't a centralized data gathering for such crimes. And we are not educating the authorities and the public about how to recognize a femicide and, and, and what to name it. Um, and it was like that in France in 2019 too, before the collages were started. And I saw, and I saw the, the role they played in shifting the culture there and really in bringing this issue, you know, to the media attention and to the collective knowledge. There is a power of art to confront our ignorance and indifference 
to challenge people in their everyday comings and going that can then plant those seeds in ways that perhaps other media cannot. Why then the choice of doing the collages and the gluing and the sort of public way of doing it to get your message across? I think that one of the reasons that the collages were so successful in attracting people who had never, you know, been in, in activism before um, was because it was also, uh, so I'm going to talk about the members, the people who decided to join. Um, it was also very therapeutic, almost like a therapeutic r ritual for them, you know, because through that practice, you are reclaiming the streets. Uh, which is a space, as we know, we are at risk as women, and we're making our voices heard in the public space, and we're gluing on public property. Um, so all of that goes against everything we're being taught as women. You know, be nice, follow the rules, be quiet, don't go out at night, uh, because we do most of our gluing at night as well. And the collages really are a way of breaking away from that conditioning and, you know, bonding in, in a very unique way amongst members. So I just realized uh, we all became so close because you feel like, you know, you've been through something together. And when you're all together like that at night and gluing and doing that, you really feel like um, invincible. And that's not something that, I was familiar with. So once I go back to the real world, um, I am like, you know what? Yeah, maybe I can do everything that I want to be doing. Um, and maybe people can't see. And I should mention that I'm like a white middle class woman. So I could just be like, oh, I don't care. You know, it doesn't affect me. But this is what I find so special about the collages. You create such deep bond that you start seeing everyone really as your um, sibling, you know, and you want a, a, a beautiful world for, for them. And I think that's something I've never really experienced in other feminism. Have you and your group encountered any backlash to that or any negative response to what you're doing or the slogans that you're putting out? And if so, how do you navigate that? So honestly, we've only had like one uh, awkward experience, but we haven't been doing that for a really long time. But yeah, I can tell you about France. Like in France, it's become so, now they have 3000 members. So it's really people are gluing constantly and it's being constantly like, there's a, a huge turnover. Um, and so now the police and, and the city of Paris just pull the collages, you know, instantly after they're being put up. So they're being torn. Even people in the streets, like you were saying, get really uncomfortable reading them, mostly men, and they also pull them. So if you go on different pages, uh, because each collage from each city has their own page. Um, if you go on the Paris one, they often post what the collage looks like after it's been torn. And it's really, um, I think it's always an, a, a very powerful image to see, you know, that someone just will just go up to it because they really can't stand it and just like pull it. So let's talk about the path forward and next steps. People across the world are talking about what's happening in Afghanistan, the concerns and the fears about the, the path for women and girls in that country. 
But the effort of you and, and other places across the world that are engaging in this work is about saying it's easy to point to one place, but let's collectively think about the impact that we can make right where we are. What is the impact that you want Feminist Collages NYC to have? So I think that if if the NYC collages, you know, could be as influential as they have, or like maybe just a quarter of as influential as they have been in France, I would be so happy, uh, you know, because in France it went from one person gluing alone to a global movement. And um, in 2020, France finally implemented the use of GPS tracking devices for domestic abusers. And we were campaigning really hard for that. So it really felt like, um, you know, an achievement. And also femicides in France dropped from 146 in 2019 to 90 in 2020. So these are really tangible achievements. Um, but I've also seen a shift in French culture, which really has a history of sexism. Um, so, you know, people are finally having tough conversations. Uh, people are more aware of femicide. But yeah, I think uh, if we put aside um, the effects on society and on the audience, and I really think that most of all, we are helping ourselves um, because women of all backgrounds are coming together and having each other's back and not just women, but, you know, people and we're really unlearning sexism together and understanding that we were being divided by design, um, that we were taught to compete with each other, to undermine each other, but th that, that can be unlearned. And that now we're creating this like worldwide sorority and it really feels like nothing can stop us. Camille is founder of the New York-based intersectional feminist collective, Feminist Collages NYC. You can find images of her work and a link to the collective's Instagram page at our website. You can visit us at ctpublic.org disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Jane Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Kelly Langevin and Macy Carvalho. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.